Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, have just sung the words that you are holy. You are set apart. We, by nature, are not holy. And yet in Christ, you invite us to draw near. You give us access to your presence. And you are renewing us in the power of your spirit. So, Father, I pray now that as we come to your word, we would receive it as a word from you, that we would receive it with the gravity that it deserves, that we would see through it the character of who you are as a holy God. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, make our hearts soft, that we would receive your word so that we would know you better and live in ways that honor and glorify you. Lord, I pray that you would direct our attention. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought, that you would forgive my sins and use even these words for your purpose. We pray together silently. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Matt, one of our pastors. We invite our young people to Children's Church. They're Uh, Children's church teachers are eagerly awaiting you. We're moving through a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and I want to give you a little heads up. We're uh, taking the text slightly out of order. Um, We are in the period of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is in Jerusalem. He arrived in the city with great fanfare. The people celebrated him uh, and, and began, it seems, even to recognize that he could be the promised king. Christ. And yet, uh, Jesus' first act of uh, public uh, ministry in the city was to cleanse the temple, to drive out those who were buying and selling, uh, and he began to make the wrong enemies. In fact, Jesus had been making the wrong enemies for quite some time. And so, after arrival in the city, a series of disputes uh, arise. The religious leaders of different types and from different places were trying to trap him in his words. They were viewing Jesus as a threat, but they also knew he was popular. So, they're very carefully navigating that series. Now, that uh, section of dialogue ends with a very famous text in which Jesus is asked about what the greatest commandment is. Uh, Next week, uh, uh, Derek Bates, a regional uh, director for RUF, will be preaching, and it just seemed to work better for him to take that text. Uh, Derek will be preaching on love, uh, the greatest of all commandments, which I'm really excited for, uh, eager to hear it, even though I'll be on vacation, uh, because even though Derek pretends to be a grumpy old man, he's one of the more emotional people I know, so I'm, I'm happy the text will set up that way. Anyway, Derek's text will end uh, with Jesus essentially silencing all the questioners. And then he moves on with what we have today, which is he speaks to the crowds and the disciples, but he offers his critique or correction of these religious leaders who were opposing him. That's what we're looking at today. And when I I return, we'll uh, pick up on the second half of this. We'll have essentially in between Derek's sermon two weeks uh, on woe to the Pharisees, a word of prophetic word of correction on Jesus for these religious leaders. Uh, I'll read this uh, first part today uh, from Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, and together we'll affirm this as God's word. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, 
but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to begin by acknowledging that this is a slightly awkward. Um, Jesus is criticizing religious professionals, religious teachers. Now, God's Word is for all of us, um, but sometimes it applies a little more specifically to some people than others. Uh, the, the Pharisees were a group of uh, Jewish people in the first century that were very serious about religious renewal. Uh, the actual number of Pharisees is far less than the, the role that they have in the gospel story because they were influential. They were leaders among the people. Now, there were other groups we've met as well. The Sadducees, for instance, uh, were more aligned with the, the, the power in the temple. The Pharisees were viewed as the back-to-the-Bible group, the renewal group that were popular with the people. They had a, a role on the council, the Sanhedrin, but they didn't have as much political power, per se, as the Sadducees. Other groups like the Essenes were hiding in the desert seeking ritual purity, and the, the Zealots were plotting their a violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. They don't show up as much in the gospel story. But the Pharisees are ever-present. They took the Bible seriously. They were serious about uh, obeying God, and they were viewed as important religious leaders. Now, um, of all the people in the room right now, that description could apply perhaps most to me. I'm a religious instructor. It's a little bit uncomfortable reading through the text. I was tempted to say, you know, thanks for coming to the sermon. I'm going to preach to myself, and if you have any extra points of application, you can tell me later. But the interesting thing about this passage is that Jesus uses this opportunity where he's criticizing the religious instructors to also show us a model of what true spiritual leadership could be. And so I think the applications of this are, are far broader. I have great confidence, and I'm not the only one who has to listen today. Uh, many of us here today have other places of leadership. Perhaps you even have some leadership role in the church. Jesus will not only criticize specific things that are going wrong, but he will then turn in verse 8 to say, but you are not to be. And he shows us not only the, the, the wrong side of the coin, but he begins to show us the right side as well. He shows us what he desires for his followers when they have spiritual leadership. He also uh, has principles here that could apply to many, many other places of leadership in our life. 
And I would guess many of you, if you begin to do inventory of your own life and think about what you're doing, would recognize, I have responsibilities. You have some leadership roles that you may exercise in your work, in your community, or in your family. Jesus is showing us what spiritual leadership looks like. But he also shows us here a model of what it means for leadership to exist in the church. And I think it's helpful for us to see this because it does go wrong. In fact, the only people Jesus uses are sinful people that are broken by nature, ones he's redeeming. And so it's not a surprise. Sometimes it goes wrong, but sometimes it goes horribly wrong. We've been more aware in recent years of the way in which spiritual authority can be abused. Hashtag church abuse or church trauma. These things are things we're becoming increasingly aware of. And though we can sometimes perhaps uh, use some of those themes to hide from the proper exercise of church leadership, the painful truth is that sometimes churches have failed exactly in this way. And the passage reminds us that Jesus hates spiritual abuse as well. He hates it when churches misuse their power and authority to harm people. And while we can't make all problems go away, we can see before us today a refreshing picture of what Jesus intends. Though we all fall short, it's helpful for us to have before us a picture. This is what Jesus wants from us. So here's how we'll break out the passage as we move forward. First of all, we'll look at the correction, three specific ways Jesus offers correction. Secondly, we'll see uh, the positive example. He says, but do this. Two things in particular Jesus wants us to do. Each of us, as we are disciples of Christ or seeking to follow them, can embody these principles. Uh, But finally, we'll land and return to the principle of Jesus is our one instructor. And we'll we'll remember how the entire passage is really related and shaped by the character of the ministry of Jesus. So three, two, one, you'll know we're counting down as we move along. Three, uh, first of all, three, uh, three corrections. If you look with me, you can follow along in the text. Uh, Jesus says a remarkable thing. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but they do not practice. Perhaps you've heard that saying before. It's a common saying in the English language. You should practice what you preach. And we'll just pause for a second and and note how remarkable it was that though Jesus was locked into a bitter battle with the Pharisees, who at this very moment were plotting to arrest them, who Jesus, in his prophetic insight, knew this would lead to his very death. When Jesus offers the correction, he doesn't shy away from saying the things they are doing right. He says, they sit on Moses' seat, and in the bulk of the role they have of explaining the teaching of Moses, there is a a central message that they have right. It's remarkable, really. Now, Jesus doesn't say this about every group. You may remember one of the competing groups, the Sadducees, came to Jesus, and one of the notable features of the Sadducees is they didn't believe in the whole of the Bible, and they had some sort of uh, compromised ideas. When they asked Jesus a question about, you know, what's going to happen in the afterlife, because they didn't believe in the afterlife, Jesus said to them, you are wrong. You don't understand the Scriptures. It's a helpful insight for us. There's all these groups in the first century that are vying for power and battling together. Jesus isn't aligning himself with any of them. 
because they're all, in a sense, in this, in this time, they're all wrong, but they're not all wrong in the same way. Jesus acknowledges that at, at the root, there is a correctness in much of what they're saying. They're, they're talking about honoring God with your life. They're talking about honoring God's Word and listening to it and seeking to obey Him. These were good things. But when they came to put it into practice, it was off. An important reminder for us as we think about what leadership would look like or, or frankly, what the Christian life would look like, it's not just the words that we use, but the life that it's embedded in that matters. This week at uh, Summer Youth Program at Bethany Baptist, uh, Royce was telling me they're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Many of you know the fruit of the Spirit, uh, you know, peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, and so on. Could you imagine talking about the fruit of the Spirit in a way that was really harsh or angry? You know, when are you ever going to learn the fruit of the Spirit is kindness? Don't you, in that sort of a scenario, right, you would say that the message isn't going to be clear. If, if you talk about those things in a way that is opposed to the message, your message isn't going to come through. Imagine that you walk into work and your employers, you know, posted all the guidelines on the rules. This is what we are. You know, we're, we're a place where we respect each other. But as you show up, you, your, your employer is, does everything but respect people, right? It would be, you would say, mixed messages. And so we say broadly in English, you need to practice what you preach, now, in a sense, what the Pharisees were preaching became more than just the centrality of the law of Moses. We know from the rest of the Gospels that they had added all of these own commandments. Their way, the way they were practicing and getting other peoples to practice, it was just so bogged down by the minute details. Jesus said that the laws they give, verse 4, they're like heavy burdens that they put on people. But there was something they got right. Even though they missed Jesus and opposed the Son of God in their midst, the one they said they were waiting for arrived and they missed him, Jesus acknowledged they were getting something right. I think it's an important reminder for all of us, especially for those of us in, in the Reformed tradition, the, uh, those of us that are maybe died in the wool Presbyterians, if there's anything we take seriously, it's doctrine. It's what a part of our tradition helps us to do. It's a really important thing. But Jesus here reminds us that you can have the right doctrine if it's not embedded in a life that's seeking to conform to Christ. We could have the entirely wrong message. Dave Stoke is an elder in our church, and he's often spoken on this subject, really essentially on the subject of, of love. And he said, you know, if you have right doctrine, but you don't love people, then actually you don't have right doctrine, <laughs> Right? Because if you don't actually believe that these things are important to live out in your life and you don't believe other people are important, that God wants that you to love them and care for them, then you actually don't understand what God's about. It's a helpful reminder for all of us here that the practice and the preaching need to go together. And honestly, the weight falls heaviest on the preacher. Right? I'm aware of this. I'm feeling this. This is heavy stuff. Speaking of heavy stuff, the second correction Jesus gives in verse 4, he says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
Based on other things said in the Gospels, I, I think what Jesus is talking about here are the ways that through the Pharisees in their zeal for God's law added all of these other laws on top of them. And it became as if their religious practice was one big burden. Now, we need to be clear, uh, God is God and we're not, and if we're going to live rightly with God, we have to obey Him. He's the Creator, we're the creation. Jesus uh, doesn't shy away from saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to pick up your cross. But I wanted to remind you of how Jesus characterized the Christian life. It is characterized by following Him as Lord right? We're no longer, if, we, if you choose to follow Jesus and become a disciple, then you say, Jesus, you're Lord, I'm not. You get to say what I do, and you should direct me. Wait, that's a hard principle for us. It goes against the very nature of our hearts, but that is what Jesus is calling us to. And with that said, let me remind you of how Jesus characterized the life of discipleship. On one hand, he could say, if you're going to follow me, you're going to pick up your cross. But in the same gospel, Matthew 11, Jesus said, this is what it's like to follow me. It's to carry the yoke with me, and my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. To come to me is to come into rest. Do you know what it's like to say, all right, Jesus, you're Lord, and I'm not? If you really embrace it, if you really know that Jesus loves you, and he has power to help you, that even in the hard moments of, of denying yourself and choosing to follow, that he is present, it becomes not a burden but a joy. God's guidance for us is actually, a, is, 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 helps us walk in the fulfillment of what he has for us. Religion is not meant to be primarily a burden. This is how Jesus spoke of it. He said, I have come that you would have freedom. I've come, he said, that you would have abundant life. I have come that the life of God would be present in you. Is that your experience of religion? You know, we live in a day and an age that is so rebellious against any kind of law or constraint that many people are increasingly aware that, my, we have to have truth. We have to have religious principles. These things are important. You can't have a society that functions without truth and guidelines and laws. But I think sometimes in that setting, we get so focused on the truth and the law that we miss the life. If you have religion without Jesus, you have a burden. What are you offering to the people around you? What are you living into in your life? I find this a helpful reminder for me that what we're called to is, is we're called into life, into joy, into fellowship with the living God. Yes, there will be times of cross-caring where it feels that the wood is wearing hard on our back, but what Jesus is offering us is life and goodness and beauty. This past week, uh, Joseph and I were rock climbing, and uh, we were with a friend of ours, and he was... Um, uh, he told me afterwards, he said, you know, I was going to do this one climb, and it was a little hard, and right as I was getting ready to go, our friend said, don't forget to have fun. He said, that really helped me. Even our hobbies can become burdens sometimes. I got to prove myself, got to do something right. So I, I wouldn't say that Jesus is telling us to have fun, 
But I would say, he would say, don't forget, I'm setting you free. Don't forget, I have life in the Spirit for you. Don't forget, there's beauty and joy and goodness. The fullness of the joys of heaven are open for you in the gospel. Don't forget it's beautiful and good. And if all you feel is burden, then perhaps you have religion without Christ. Here's the third, uh, third correction. He says they are hypocrites. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi for others. The sense of all of this is that their religious as activity has become a vehicle for self-promotion. Phylacteries were um, uh, small boxes that contained uh, parts of a scroll of Scripture. And the Old Testament uh, said at one place that we should take God's Word and bind it on our hearts. Right? That's a, that's a good thing for us uh, uh, to do. Deuteronomy 11.18 says, Take these words of mine and bind them as a sign on your hand and like frontlets between your eyes. That's a good principle. Uh, metaphorically speaking, and some people took it literally, so they would take a little box, put the words in it, and put it on their head, and maybe you could do that in a prayer time, or maybe you'd you know, walk around in other settings, and in itself, that could be a helpful reminder, but Jesus was pointing out here that some people are getting bigger and bigger phylacteries, and he's like, all right, what's this really about here? Is this really about you taking God's Word and internalizing it? Or is it you showing other people how religious you are? And for some of us, it might be helpful to, to wear a necklace with a cross on it, a reminder that I am carrying a cross of my Savior who died for me and set me free. But you can imagine in a certain time or a place how tempting it would be to perhaps have a bigger cross. Right? Maybe, maybe that's just a bigger reminder, but you can imagine a setting where a person would, would have a bigger and bigger thing, and, and all of a sudden you're beginning to wonder, what is really going on here? Is your religious observance about honoring God, or is it about showing your little subgroup that you're the most serious? The human heart is deceptively Deceptively wicked, Jeremiah tells us, we can take even religious things and make them about ourselves. We could do that. In fact, we're bound to do it. That's what the human heart does. In your, in your subgroup, in our religious subgroup, we could use our own status and symbols to lift ourselves up. The very thing God gives us to exalt Him, we can begin to do for ourselves. You think there's ever an occasion where someone who's speaking in front of other people begins to think, oh boy, isn't it great that people are listening to me? It's deadly, dangerous, and frightening. I'm not sure any of us beat it all together. But the very good stuff that God gives us can be corrupted and twisted as a means of self-promotion. Jesus calls them hypocrites. They are using this for their own purpose, using religious language to exalt themselves. Fortunately, he gives us a way forward. Not only do we do the reverse of this, but he begins to tell them in verse 8, this is how you should do it. We'll look at two corrections that Jesus gives. In verse 8, he says, but you are not to be. But you are not to be like that. There's a different way of living. 
Look at the, the two things that Jesus tells us. First of all, uh, he challenges their use of titles. It's a specific thing here. Verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, it would be tempting for us to take this to an extreme and suggest that no person ever has a title. I was picturing in my mind, you know, the ways you might possibly do that. You know, we, we, we don't talk to our parents as father and mother, right? We don't, we don't recognize any position or role. We just call each other comrade, right? You know, you can imagine the, the hospital room after a birth and the nurse walks in and you have a new comrade. All right. No, that's silly. Um, and the rest of the New Testament doesn't shy away from an appropriate use of titles, right? The Gospels, for instance. I'm sorry, in many of the letters, there's instruction, parents do this. The command, honor your father and mother, still applies. Jesus not only had disciples, but he appointed some of them as apostles and called them that and gave them a certain role. I don't think Jesus is saying here that you can't call your parents father. He's not saying we don't recognize a role. In Ephesians chapter, uh, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says Jesus actually gave teachers to the church. But he is getting at the fact that your use of titles can draw attention to yourself and away from where the attention should be. I think what Jesus is showing us here is the way in which our love for a title of privilege can begin to make religion about us and not about God. I think it's an important lesson here, and even in a church, I do think that though we recognize positions and roles that God may be working in our midst, I think we should be cautious about how we speak of each other. And uh, here we have the principle that if God is central, we want to make sure we talk about each other in a way that, rem that reminds us and reminds ourselves and each other it's really about Him. A second correction uh, follows from it, verses 11 and 12. Jesus tells us that humility and service are meant to drive not only leadership, but really the whole of the Christian life. He's been arguing with the Pharisees. This whole thing is aimed, verse 1, at the crowds and at his disciples, but he says, this is not how you're meant to live. If you're going to follow me, you're not going to live as people who are endlessly self-promoting but you will humble yourselves and you will serve. Let's just think practically here about where that might show up in your life. Where in your life has God called you into some sort of position of leadership? Maybe it's your work. Maybe God has given you the incredible privilege of serving others by being a leader. Isn't that just even that word begins to shift the paradigm, doesn't it? You walk in uh, perhaps to your office and you see a list of your employees. Those, are, those people are not there to serve you. God has put you in your position that you would serve them by giving them work and guiding them to the use of their gifts. Now, the Bible tells us also there's a reciprocal action. If we have people in our lives that are leaders, we're meant to honor them. Uh, we're, we're meant to uh, submit to godly uh, a rule in our lives, that there's a, a good blessing of authority. But Jesus tells us that the way it's meant to work is that all positions of leadership are meant to be those of service. 
and that changed things. My life was deeply transformed, uh, boy, about three decades ago. I had a summer job. I was working for my uncle. He owned his own construction crew. We were building houses. I would sometimes come on for a few weeks. And I knew that in that setting, there was a hierarchy of workers. Some had been there longer and had more skill. And I understood that I was at the absolute bottom of the rung, the bottom rung of the ladder. I was the newest, I was the youngest, I was there in summer labor, and I knew if there was a dirty job, I was supposed to do it. Or if someone was supposed to carry a box of nails up to the you know, second floor where people could use it, it wouldn't make sense for an experienced carpenter to do it. You have the new guy do it. All right, so I spent a lot of time carrying things and learning things and doing things. But throughout the summer, my uncle, who's a follower of Christ, would often do stuff that completely subverted my expectation of what a boss should do. One day I arrived early and there was a ditch on the outside of the house. There was a a really uh, nasty tar type substance that was being put against the wall to waterproof it before the dirt was put in. And I got there and my uncle was in the ditch with like a rag around his face putting the tar up. And I looked at him and I said, what are you doing? I know that's supposed to be my job, right? Anyone can put up tar. I don't have a lot of skill. I'm supposed to be in the ditch. And he just looked up and shrugged me off and said, this is just too nasty. I couldn't ask anyone else to do it. Another occasion, the trusses were being set in this second two-story open living room. The trusses were going across them and all of a sudden I saw him out there in the middle balanced precariously on a large wall and I said, listen, um, that looks dangerous. I'm only 18, my bones heal, I think I can balance, I should go. And he said, no, I can't ask anyone to do it. And it changed my life. Because I came to understand that what he was doing was not just a, a principle of good management, but it was an embodiment of his faith. He was living out who he understood Jesus to be. He was the only person I ever met that would reverse bargain with me. When I was coming to work for him, he'd say, all right, how much am I going to pay you? And I'd say, oh, you paid me this last summer. And he'd say, okay, it's going to be at least a 10-cent raise. Okay, 15. And if I didn't stop him, he'd keep going. It was different, and it caught my attention. And I saw through the human life a picture of who God has revealed to be in Jesus. That's our landing point for today. Perhaps you've noticed that when Jesus said, this is what I want you to do, he's preaching what he's practiced. When we come to the Gospels and we see Jesus, the Bible tells us you are seeing the character of God lived out in human form. If you heard that sentence without any background, what would you expect it to look like? We sang already of the holiness of God, the awesome, infinite power of God, the majesty of God, the otherness of God. If God came near to us, what would happen? What would it be like? We might imagine it would be just one long exaltation of all about how great God is, and all of that would be true in its appropriate place. That's the praise we are drawn into. But when God wanted to reveal himself to us most fully, he came in human form. 
and he humbled himself to be in our midst. We read that in our call to worship, didn't we? When Paul was calling us to Christian life, he's just copying Jesus here. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. The service of Jesus really encompassed all of his life. When theologians talk about the ministry of Jesus, they describe his humiliation, and that is everything from the eternal Son of God leaving the throne room of heaven and being born on earth in human form. And not just any human. You know, Jesus was poor. He grew up in a a marginalized group on the fringes of the Roman Empire, and among those people... He was poor. He lived his earthly ministry with no apparent means or money. He was dependent on others. At one point, he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He humbled himself all the way. But not only through the course of his ministry as Jesus would serve his disciples, confusing them, turning their expectations upside down. On the night he was betrayed, he washed their feet. Peter was so taken back. He said, no, Lord, you can't do this for me. I know my role. I'm supposed to wash your feet if any foot washing was to happen. And Jesus said, unless you know that I'm here to serve you, you don't really know me. Paul says he humbled himself not only in his earthly ministry, but he humbled himself to the point of death. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, he knew he was going to die. And when he described what he was doing there, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I'll just pull back for a second on this scene. The Pharisees may still be there. Jesus has been arguing with them. And he's, he's correcting them. It's, it's direct, it's clear, it's honest. And when we continue with chapter 23, we'll see he has some really pointed words. But you know what's remarkable to me when I pull back and think about it? Is that Jesus is taking the time to argue with them. The very Son of God came and entered in. Not only is he arguing with them, but he's staying present. Knowing that they will be betrayed, knowing that he will be killed. The very people who are arguing with him and rejecting him are the types of people that he will die for. In his letter to the Romans, Paul said, when we were the enemies of God, God sent Jesus for you. More often than not, we do find ourselves in the role of the Pharisees. We've misused what power we have We even take religious activities and we use them for self-promotion. We can be hypocrites. That's who Jesus died for. He didn't give up. He didn't walk away. He didn't say at this point, you know, Jesus, if you're going to have me, Jesus didn't say, God the Father, if the plan is to die for these people, I'd like to rethink it. He didn't do that. But he stayed And he engaged, knowing what would happen to him. He humbled himself to the point of death, and he served us 
by dying in our place that all who would believe in him would walk in the fullness of the life of the Son of God. That's a God that we worship. We worship him with our words and as we live, as we follow him, perhaps in a position of leadership or perhaps as we seek to honor him as in all the areas of other areas of our life, as we conform, as we have this mind among us, we're giving glory and honor to the King of Kings who humbled himself and gave himself for us. Let's pray that God would increasingly work that way of thinking into our lives as we celebrate and rejoice in the goodness of the gospel. Let's sing on, uh, I'm, I'm, no, we're not gonna sing. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna re, uh, read the scriptural response. As the uh, musicians come forward, then, then we'll sing.